0: On JPAM's Closer Look, we will be talking to leading authors published in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management on timely topics such as healthcare, education, immigration reform and economics. Our guest today is Dr. Patrick Turner, Assistant Research Professor in the Department of Economics and also an affiliate at the Wilson-Sheehan Lab for Economic Opportunities at the University of Notre Dame. Welcome to the Closer Look podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: We're really excited to have you on today, and I'm looking forward to talking about a pretty important and pretty interesting new article that you recently published in JPM. The article is entitled High Skilled Immigration and the Labor Market. Evidence from the H-1B Visa Program. I like it because it's an important study on a controversial topic, immigration, and specifically how immigration affects Native workers. But there's a few definitions in the title of the study that we should discuss right now at the outset. Um, The first of those definitions is high-skilled. What do we mean by high-skilled workers or high-skilled labor markets?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So this paper is going to specifically look at workers in the U.S. with at least a college education. And I'm going to be grouping workers into skill groups based on what they studied when they went to college. Okay. So in this paper, I'm thinking about labor markets at the national level where each market is a different group of workers okay. defined by a different college major or the sets of skills that they entered the labor market with. So at a high level, you could think about this paper uh, is looking at the labor market for STEM workers and the labor market for non-STEM workers in the United States.
0: Okay. STEM is science, technology, engineering, and math. What can you? What are some college majors that would show up there? I mean, I guess like engineering, obviously, and math. Any, any other
1: majors? Engineering, math, computer science, a lot of the pre-med fields, so biology, chemistry, okay. those sorts of things.
0: Got it. And so those are important in the modern economy. Um can you talk a little bit about like what what role do those majors play in in the modern economy in terms of like industries and also when we're thinking about immigration part of it is are there shortages or are there not enough workers in those fields in the US currently that immigrants might help out with uh, filling those gaps
1: Yeah so so there's certainly been a policy focus on increasing the size of the stem workforce in the US the language around this is usually about increasing or maintaining the economic competitiveness of the US workforce uh-huh. uh and like you mentioned employers have been using immigration as a means in which they can hire workers with these skills with these majors amongst you know a talented global workforce right so but why is it important for the modern economy well these workers tend to have very specialized skills related to things like research and development activities. Okay. Uh, and we like them in our in our labor market because they, they tend to do things that increase the productivity of all of the workers around them. So, for example, when when software engineers develop Excel or you know, during the pandemic, we have Zoom that was created or developed by these software engineers or Gmail. Or if a team of engineers creates the new iPhone or a f- faster computer chip, these sorts of things make all workers around us more and more productive, and that's good for the economy.
0: Right. Those those spillovers mm-hmm. boost growth. Okay. Speaking about these higher skilled workers or, or specific industries like uh, software design and so on, at least in, in the past few years, that seems a little bit removed from the type of immigration that is showing up on the news. I feel like a lot of the political debates about immigration in the past few years have largely been about immigrants from South America, who I believe, but correct me if I'm wrong, tend to have less formal schooling and less formal credentials. Uh, Is that right? And if so, I assume that the policy issues surrounding these different types of immigration are pretty different.
1: Yeah, that's, that's right. So this paper is going to sidestep thinking about that sort of context that we see around the southern border of the U.S. Okay. is thinking more about workers who come into the U.S. with higher levels of education uh, and are, are entering largely from other countries, too. So the H-1B program at the center of this paper is going to require that workers have a bachelor's degree, and they work in a, quote, specialty occupation. Okay. So in some sense, the policy issues uh, that you mentioned, they're going to be different, but in some sense, uh, they're going to be the same as well. So Uh, On the one hand, migrant workers in lower-wage occupations may not have the same sort of technology spillovers that we were discussing as STEM migrants might, Mm -hmm. but really the economics that I'm thinking about in this paper uh, are somewhat similar, right? This question of how do the relative wages of U.S.-born workers respond to increased competition from immigrants? Uh, and so that's going to be the same if you're thinking about higher educated workers or lower educated workers. And the key to looking at this question is going to be thinking very carefully about which type of workers are competing closely with newly arrived immigrants.
0: And that's something we'll come back to, I think, in in, in your study's design is who exactly is competing for these jobs and and how substitutable are they? Uh, how similar are they to, to the immigrants, right? And then empirically... Any study of immigration, whether it's higher wage or lower wage workers, is just really difficult, right? And it's difficult because there's no experiment here. It's totally non-random who immigrates, when they immigrate, where they move to. And that means that there's lots of confounding factors that just complicate the analysis. And if we see native wages go up or go down, are they going up? because of the immigration, or are they going up because of something else that's happening at about the same time? Is that right, getting at the main sort of challenge here?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So kind of like you you said, right, deciding when to migrate and where to migrate is not going to be a random choice for immigrants themselves. Mm-hmm. So immigrants are going to respond to a number of factors Uh, both in their home countries, like we're seeing with immigration coming from Central and South America, right? People being pushed out of their countries, maybe because of violence or lack of economic opportunities. Uh, And they're going to respond to pool factors or things that are going on in the destinations that they could potentially choose from. So if wages are good where they're going to, or there's many employers hiring in a particular labor market, immigrants are going to be more likely to show up in those Places This positive relationship then between wages and immigrant arrival, like you said, would lead to kind of biased analyses. We, we typically think that bringing in more workers is going to drive wages down, but that positive relationship could potentially bias us away from finding that negative relationship in the data. And so in order to deal with this, any sort of study of immigration is going to need to find some sort of variable that shifts the number of immigrants that are entering into a particular labor market, into a particular skill group Mm -hmm. that is not related to, uh, you know, the subsequent wages of the workers that you're looking at.
0: Right. And, And the fancy name for that thing, that random source of variation in immigration is an instrumental variable. That's your empirical approach. And we'll get into that later. But first, the source of the variation that you study in this paper is created by a policy, specifically the H-1B visa, which is a U.S. immigration policy tool. What is an H-1B visa and why, when were they introduced? Do other countries have similar programs? What's the nuts and bolts of the H-1B program in the U.S.?
1: Yeah, so the H-1B visa came about as a part of the Immigration Act of 1990. There used to be a visa category called the H-1 visa. It was split into two, the H-1A and the H-1B. The H-1B, what I'm looking at here, is an immigrant visa that brings in temporary workers into the U.S. who, like I said before, have a bachelor's degree and, quote, work in a specialty occupation. These folks can come and work in the U.S. for a three-year period. This visa can be renewed for a second three-year period, up to six years they're here. Uh, They're typically, throughout the life of the program since 1990, they've been used to fill IT or information technology type occupations. So predominantly used to hire from abroad computer programmers, Mm -hmm. software engineers, You know, historically, a lot of these H-1B visa workers have been coming from China and from India. They're the two kind of most prominent providers of H-1B workers to the U.S.
0: Okay, in terms of, of getting a visa for the immigrant, for the potential worker, does the immigrant apply for that or does the hiring company here apply for that?
1: The hiring company applies on behalf of the immigrant for a particular job that they're looking to fill. Okay. They fill out an application on behalf of the potential worker, and they have to do things like show that they uh, are going to be paying this person a prevailing wage, show okay. that they meet the specialty occupation criteria, those sorts of things. Uh, they're vetted by the government in order to, to, to potentially get this visa for them.
0: Got it. So they basically have to sort of have a match lined up. For a particular job with a particular person before they can, can even apply right, okay, and then the other dimension of the program is that it's what I understand is called a dual intent visa. The first intent obviously is is the job, I guess, but the the second intent is a possible bridge to permanent residency. Do I understand that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. So while individuals are here on the H-1B visa in a temporary immigration category, they can also then, uh, alongside of that, apply for legal permanent residency, like you said. And so that's either going to be trying to get an employment-based visa with their current employer, maybe they're trying to apply for a family sponsorship visa, those visa categories tend to have long wait times. Okay. Particularly if you're an immigrant applying for a family visa from India or China. Uh, and so, one of the features that's nice about this, the H 1B visa, is that while you're applying, even if your six years are up, each subsequent year you can renew your visa on an annual basis while you're waiting in the queue for legal permanent residency.
0: Okay. And and that initial three or six year stint is enough time to get the paperwork moving for one of these more permanent applications.
1: Yeah, that's right. So just to kind of put some numbers around this. So of the nearly kind of million immigrants who get legal permanent residency in the U.S., mm-hmm. here about 15 percent of people get legal permanent residency each year through an employment based visa. And among those getting an employment-based uh, green card, 80% of them were already here working in the United States on some sort of temporary work-based visa. Okay. And the H-1B comprises about half of that. So it's a, it's a pretty important program for recruiting highly educated, highly skilled workers from abroad.
0: Got it. Yeah, I didn't realize it was that many. Now, you're going to exploit the offerings of these H-1B visas, you're going to leverage them as a source of random variation or semi-random variation in how many high schooled immigrants are coming into the U.S. And the reason you can do that is that there is a cap on the number of H-1B visas each year, and over time, those caps change, right? So what would the cap look like in a typical year? How much would it change between years? And why do the caps change over time?
1: Yeah, so you're exactly right. There's a quota. There's a cap on the number of H-1B visas that we can give out for newly arrived H-1B workers each year. Uh, and it's changed a lot over time. So when the program started in 1990, it set a cap at about at 65,000 H-1B visas. Uh, the cap's been increased twice since then. In particular, over the period of study that I'm looking at, 1990 to roughly 2010, it increased to 115,000 starting in 1999, and then it again increased to 195,000 in 2001. That was kind of a; those were temporary increases, and in 2004, the cap was allowed to expire in the wake of 9/11, and so. They did not renew the cap at that point, it fell back down to the original 65,000 potential visas that could be issued each year. And then one other change has happened since then. So in 2006, there was an increase that fiscal year to allow for 20,000 more visas, uh, with the stipulation that those visa recipients had to have a master's degree or higher from a US-based institution. Uh, And that extra 20,000 has been around since then. So right now you're looking at about 85,000 visas uh, in a given year. And you also ask, like, why did those increase over time? Why might this vary? So I think the title of the laws that instituted some of these cap changes are a little bit telling in terms of the motivation. And so that first increase was the American Competitiveness and Workforce Improvement Act the second cap increase was the, in the American Competitiveness in the 21st Century Act. So it seems like it's really this idea of trying to recruit and retain a talented workforce for these jobs that Im- at least employers say they have a hard time hiring for. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned, the the cap decrease, you know, some of the telling of the, the history of that is that maybe it was in the wake of 9-11, there was some trepidation toward immigrants and so they allowed the cap to to expire from national security concerns. That's also happening in the wake of the dot-com bust. And so potentially maybe there's a little bit lower demand for these types of jobs in the Mm -hmm. early 2000s after the, you know, the crash of that, that market.
0: That makes sense. And I mean, so the caps on the one hand, I guess, 60, 80, hundred thousand, that's a lot of people, but in terms of like the IT sector as a whole or STEM workforce as a whole, That's a smaller percentage, I would guess. Is that fair?
1: Yeah. So like I said, a lot of these visas tend to go toward IT. We'll talk about this in a little bit, I think, too. But one of the key measures in my paper is the relative number of immigrants to U.S.-born workers in a particular skill cell. And the skill group that's most exposed to the H-1B visa program are computer scientists, as you might expect, given kind of the types of jobs I've been mentioning. And from like 1990 to the peak of the cap in 2000, the immigrant-native ratio of workers graduating during those cohorts or entering the U.S. labor market during those cohorts increased by about 50 percentage points. So it's, I'd say it's a relatively large component of this, at least you know, driving immigrants into these skill groups.
0: So there's like at least twice as many native computer scientists, roughly.
1: The, well, the change in the, the, the native to immigrant ratio changed by about 50 percentage points. Okay. I'd have to look back and see what the, the average average was around it.
0: But the caps are binding in the sense that if there's 60,000 visas, do 60,000 visas get applied for and, and taken? Is that right? Or do some not get used?
1: Yeah, so in the early years of the program, in the earlier 1990s, the cap was less binding. There were some years in the late 1990s where it was. Okay. My understanding is that the cap's been binding since the, the cap fell back down to 65,000 in 2004. And so you'll see a lot of, there's actually in this literature a number of other papers that use this binding cap because when the, the cap does bind, applications that are received uh, on that day are then entered into a lottery to determine who ends up getting the visa and who doesn't so okay um, some other papers in this in this sphere use that kind of random variation
0: right and, and that could be like what firm gets the worker what part of the country gets the worker
1: yeah, you have two firms who both applied for the H-1B visa on the same day. One randomly got it, one didn't. And then you can see things like how did employment change or how did wages change or are they more likely to to produce patents, that sort of thing.
0: Uh, yeah, that's pretty interesting. But in your paper, you're not looking at that lottery per se. You're just looking at changes over time in how many H-1B visas are allowed. And then you're going to use that as an instrumental variable to help to isolate or separate out the random variation in how many uh, high skilled immigrants are coming in from the less useful to empiricists, non-random or endogenous variation in immigration levels.
1: Yeah. That's ex- yep. yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and it's a really cool research design. We won't get too much into the weeds of, of instrumental variables on the podcast here, but if you're interested, I do encourage you to read the article and, and there's some equations and discussion about the specifics of, of how Dr. Turner does this. It, it is pretty cool. Before we get into uh, any further, what do you find in terms of a quick highlighting of the results? Does high-skilled immigration affect Native workers' wages or other labor market outcomes? What's the high-level finding here?
1: Yeah. So, so like I bef- mentioned before, so I'm going to be comparing the average wages of different groups of workers who faced more or less competition from immigrants using this change in policy from the H-1B visa. And what I'm going to find are that workers who were most exposed to increased competition from skilled immigrants, largely STEM majors, had lower wages than you would have expected given their age and college major. So importantly, I find that I only see this effect after dealing with this kind of endogeneity concern, this this problem that we have that immigrants show up when the labor market's particularly good. And my results are going to suggest that if you increase the share of immigrants in this particular skill group relative to native-born workers by 10 percentage points, that's going to decrease the relative wages of the workers in that skill group by about 1 percent. Relative to like other workers that have different skills in the economy,
0: okay. And so is that is that a large effect? like how do we think about mm-hmm. you know, you said a ten percentage point increase in in high school immigrants. First off, is that a typical inflow? How often do we actually see that kind of increase in in high schooled immigration? And then on the flip side, for that one percent drop in in native workers, relative wages, is that a, a big or practically meaningful change?
1: Right. Yeah. So I'd say it's moderately large. The most exposed skill group, like I mentioned a second ago, are computer science majors. So from about 1990 to 2000, the ratio of the number of immigrants to the number of native-born workers with a computer science major entering the labor market in a given year, increased by about 50 percentage points. So that would imply a decrease in relative wages of computer science graduates in 2000 um, of about 5% relative to you know similar workers who entered the labor market about 10 years before in the paper i try to use the structure of a simple model to quantify this in a slightly different way okay and so looking at how immigration from 1990 to 2010 affected the the stem wage premium over time so we know that stem jobs tend to be well paid stem workers tend to make more than non stem workers in the mm-hmm. aggregate and so my results of, uh, of this kind of like a back-of-the-envelope calculation suggest that skilled immigration over that two-decade period decreased the uh, STEM wage premium by about 4 to
0: 12%. And that's for everybody.
1: That's right. Yeah, so immigrant I'm or native. Aggregate. Yep. Yeah.
0: I mean, that definitely seems like a, a, a notable policy-relevant effect. Mm-hmm. If you think about how happy would you be if you got a 10% raise at work A 10% pay cut is pretty pretty sizable. So given these results, how do they match up with prior studies of immigration, whether it's lower wage immigration or other settings, other strategies, other sources of variation in immigration? Are these results sort of in line with what other folks have found?
1: So maybe I'll make two kind of points here. So the first would be that my main point estimate in my paper is A little bit smaller than some other studies in the literature that kind of take this national labor market approach that that I use to Mm -hmm. see how changes in the relative supply of workers coming from immigration affects relative wages. Mm -hmm. This could be for a couple of different reasons. My study in particular looks at just college-educated workers and makes comparisons across college-educated workers with different groups of college majors. Earlier papers have looked at all workers and have made comparisons across, say, like college-educated workers versus folks with some college, some who just have a high school diploma, and maybe folks who didn't complete high school. So that could be a part of the difference between my study and others I also look at all workers pulling together women and men. Earlier studies might have just focused on the wages of men. Mm -hmm. I do some things in the paper to kind of show how maybe if you change some of my setup, I get a little bit closer towards some of these larger point estimates in the literature. I want to make one other point that I think is important here in terms of there's a big literature looking at the wage effects of immigration. And I should say that my paper focuses on a very specific type of effective immigration on wages. So, like I said, I'm making these comparisons across groups of workers at the national level. This sort of difference in difference type analysis is going to net out any changes that happen in the aggregate to say all college educated workers, what you might call like the total effective immigration on all workers. So because I'm looking within college workers and comparing, say, STEM to non-STEM workers, Mm -hmm. if it's the case that skilled immigration raises the wages of all college educated workers, my study is not going to be able to identify that kind of total effect in the aggregate of college educated workers. I'm just going to be able to say among any changes in this aggregate effect on all college educated workers... Who stands to benefit and who stands to lose? There's some other evidence out there from, say, like Giovanni Perry and others who have tried to get at this total effective immigration. And there they make some comparisons across cities and say, okay, if we if we can try to back out an exogenous variation in in cities that get a lot of skilled immigrants, STEM immigrants versus cities that for some seemingly random reason did fewer STEM immigrants, they show some pretty compelling evidence that uh, these cities that got skilled immigrants saw actually faster wage growth. So I think there's two stories here. Yeah, Skilled immigration can increase everybody's wages, but around that improvement, you might see some people who stand to benefit and some people who stand to not do so well. And again, it depends on who's competing with whom. That second channel.
0: And you do come back to that a little bit about how how substitutable people are. So let's talk about the data then. You use the American Community Survey's data, the ACS. Is that publicly available? And and who collects that data?
1: Yeah. So the ACS is a household survey collected each year by the Census Bureau. Okay. Um, it's about a one percent sample of the U.S. population, uh, and it's going to collect information on, among other things, things like wages, occupation, how much schooling you have, what you studied in school, who you're living in a household with, what kind of things are about your household, your geographic mobility, your place of birth, nativity stats, all of these sorts of things. It's kind of the survey that the Census Bureau created to replace the, if you remember, the, the longer form version of the decennial census. Okay. So it's a pretty rich data set. Yeah, it's a pretty rich data set and it is publicly available. You know, you can access this data directly through the US Census Bureau. For my version of the paper I get I collect this data from IPUMS, which is the Integrated Public Use Microdata System, I believe out of the University of Minnesota. So they've done a lot of work to try to harmonize variables in this survey across years and across, you know, so you can compare the ACS to say the 1960 census. It's a great great public service. And it's a really easy way to access this sort of data.
0: It is a great resource. And we'll we'll put a link to the, I never know how to pronounce it, Ip, I'll, uh, but I'll follow your lead and say the IPUMS. I think it's ipms.org, but we'll get a link to the website up when we post the podcast. It It is absolutely a great resource that cleans and, and harmonizes all sorts of data sets, not just the ACS. And then remind me what years, you're not using all the years that the H- no. H-1B program was in effect. What, what years does the ACS cover and what years is your study using?
1: Yeah, so the, the ACS launched after being piloted for a few years in 2005. Okay. But importantly for my study, it was in 2009 that the census added a question to the ACS about what college major or what field of study you pursued when you went to college. What I'm gonna do in my paper is I'm gonna use a pooled three-year sample of the ACS from 2010 to 2012 to identify the wages of workers in the U.S. at that time. And then I have information about when folks' ages. So I know for U.S.-born workers, the years in which they likely entered the U.S. labor market, I assume, you know, like 24, likely when they graduated from college, And I know when immigrants arrived in the U.S. And so in 2010, I can line up immigrants and natives who have been in the labor market in the U.S. for the same amount of time and what college majors they have. And so that's how I'm going to be able to group workers together into these groups of workers that are likely competing with one another in the national labor market.
0: Yeah. And that's really one of the key innovations of your study, right, is using college majors instead of occupations. To sort of determine who's competing with who.
1: Yeah, so typically we think about competition in the labor market as workers applying to the same type of job or occupation as you. But it could be the case that if immigrants come into the US and you, in, you experience some increased competition in the labor market for a STEM-related job, native-born workers, their response might be to say, Well, I'm not gonna pursue a job as a computer engineer or a software designer. I'm gonna now be a project manager that links up the system side of an organization with the business side of an organization because mm-hmm. maybe I have some comparative advantage in communication. And uh, and so if if I try to group workers by their occupations, because uh, U.S.-born workers might have switched occupations in response to immigrants, it's going to be hard to, to line up who competed with the immigrants. You're going to miss them. Exactly. They're going to have moved over into a different skill group, and I won't see any effect on wages. And so college majors then gives you this nice uh, ability to, to look at a characteristic that's largely fixed for most people. You graduate from college. You can't go back in time and, and you know, when you're 30 and change your major because now all of a sudden you're competing with immigrants. And most people tend not to go back and get another bachelor's degree after they've got you know gone to college, and so I have this nice trait or a nice characteristic about a person that's largely unresponsive to immigration then that allows me to group these workers into different skill categories
0: that makes a ton of sense to me, and I think it's a clever idea to sort of change how you're defining competition cells or 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 skill cells for sure and more generally, I think college major is just an important decision that people make that's probably understudied by researchers and also under thought about in, in public policy generally. So I, I did appreciate that for that reason as well. So you have this ACS data, the ACS has college major. We're defining skill sets via these college major variables. And we've mentioned the word instrumental variables a couple times now, and we've mentioned H1B caps as the instrument that creates random variation in how many immigrants or how many high-skilled immigrants are coming into the United States. But there's another, well, and I should say, like, in in a nutshell, that's exactly what instrumental variables are doing. They're isolating that random variation. But there's a nice line in your paper that, presents the analysis in terms of a difference-in-difference estimation, which I really appreciated. And I think some of our listeners will appreciate because there have been several episodes of the podcast that studied and talked about difference-in-difference designs. And the line in your paper is that what you're doing is you're comparing some college majors that had lots of H-1B workers in them to other college majors with few H-1B majors in them. And when I say compare them, you're comparing wages across majors. And then you're looking at at how that wage difference changes over time in response to the H-1B cap. And I hope I explained that right. But I, I found that description and interpretation of your analysis to be pretty intuitive and, and pretty compelling. Did I get that right?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. And I'm laughing because I you can blame my uh, my doctoral training and my advisor for that. He said that Every paper I write should be able to be boiled down or distilled down into some simple comparison that you could say in one sentence of words. And so you're exactly right. So Mm -hmm. while I do use this instrumental variables uh, method in my paper, the heart of the identification strategy is really this difference-in-difference approach that's going to compare... I would say H-1B exposed majors. I can't observe in the H-1B application data what the majors of H-1B applicants are. So I'm kind of guessing based off of the types of occupations that these H-1Ps tend to work in. But I'd say, Mm -hmm. you know, it's going to compare H-1B exposed majors or put differently, STEM majors to non-exposed or non-STEM majors. And it's the wages of folks who in the wages of folks in 2010 for people who entered the labor market in years when the, la- the cap was high versus entered the labor market when the cap was low. If I entered the labor market, I'm really proxying for that, like, you know, ra- roughly around the years that folks graduated from college.
0: I always tell my students that no matter how fancy the regression is, re- regression is just a tool for making group comparisons. The hard part is choosing the right comparisons. Who do you want to compare to who? And I think you got it right here with this idea about the college majors. So definitely an intuitive idea. The other thing I want to point out then is that in the years when there was no change in the H-1B cap, there was no change in the wage gap between these more and less exposed majors, which I also thought was a pretty compelling validity check or placebo test of whether your approach is working.
1: Yeah. You can thank a, a very helpful anonymous reviewer from JPAM as well. That was a nice piece that they suggested I add. Oh, I nice. That's a good, Like you said, it's a good way to check that what you're thinking you're comparing is, is exactly what you're comparing or hoping to be comparing.
0: Right. So there's no effect when there shouldn't be one or couldn't be one, but there is an effect when there could be one for sure. So thank you to the anonymous reviewer. Maybe they won JPAM's Best Reviewer Award. Who knows? So we'll leave it at that on the methods. Again, interested listeners can read all about the exact models and other variable definitions and so on in the article itself. One last interpretation point, though, I do want to mention is that instrumental variables identify the late or the local average treatment effect. This is part of what Josh Angrist won the Nobel Prize for, I think, last year or maybe the year before. And that's just a fancy way of saying that that this estimate is sort of locally valid, and, and it's locally valid in the sense that it's driven by a particular type of variation in immigration. But as you put out on the paper, we think that's a policy-relevant parameter or policy-relevant effect that you're picking up. Is there anything else you want to say about that or, or help us think about how to interpret it?
1: Yeah, so uh, maybe just two things. So one thing I didn't mention before is that there are some industries that are not bound by the cap. They're exempt from the cap. One being, you know, higher education institutions can hire H one B workers, and they're not bound by a cap. There's also a number of employers in the U S. that rely heavily on H one Bs. They might cycle in, you know, folks from. India, they bring them in, they outsource them to other companies within the U.S., but there's really no intention of these workers kind of staying longer term. And so to the extent that these sort of different pathways of entering the U.S., these different entrance mechanisms might affect wages in different ways. My analysis is really going to be driven by the context that the instrument I'm using is influencing. So this idea mm-hmm. of maybe like a Microsoft or a Facebook bringing in a, an H one B worker with the intent of having them stay on long term. So these these skill cells or these majors that are going to be influenced by. By the cap, it's really that variation that's going to be driving my estimates, not maybe some of these other potential potential industries.
0: Right. To come back to those estimates or that main result, we said it was a ten percent change in in immigration led to a one percentage point change in wages. And one way to present those findings is as an elasticity. What is an elasticity, and and why is that a useful way to summarize your findings?
1: Yeah, so it's a way of summarizing the change in the supply of workers relative to the change in the wages that you might expect in percent terms. And one reason it's nice looking at that as an elasticity is then it's easier to make these comparisons across studies, I'd say. And then, you know, this analysis that I do looking at the STEM wage premium, the structure behind the theoretical model in my paper— Whether or not you believe it or not, you know, my estimates are what they are. But if you believe the structure of this model, then it does give you kind of this way of doing a back of the envelope calculation, plugging in this elasticity that I get from my regression equation Mm -hmm. to try to say something more broadly about distribution of wages across workers.
0: And what is the elasticity that you estimate?
1: So it's about one. 0.1%. So just like we've been mentioning before, a 10 percentage point increase in the relative labor supply of immigrants in a particular skill group is going to decrease the relative wages of that group by one-tenth of that or 1%.
0: Right. Okay. So the elasticity is the, the ratio of those two That's numbers. Right. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And then I, I think you said other studies find an elasticity not too far from that,
1: right? Yeah, a little larger. You know it, Different studies find different things, but maybe ranging from point, negative point 0.3 to negative one, depending on the approach or the setting. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, And then another nice feature of your study, I thought, is that you go beyond this direct effect on relative wages to talk about mechanisms. I always find that useful and, and interesting to really help me believe and understand the main result. You know, if we see this effect, we want to know why the effect's happening. And you propose or hypothesize that there's a couple different reasons this wage penalty might come about. What do you find there?
1: Yeah. So, you know, it could be that folks are earning lower wages in a given year because they were less likely to work that year. Maybe they worked fewer hours that year. or Maybe they're just pursuing different types of works that you know, pay different wages. And so I rule out the fact that there is large disemployment effects that are coming from, from immigration. Folks in 2010 are you know, just about as likely to be working when you're looking at folks who had, you know, were exposed to a, a large amount of H-1B immigration versus little. Um, but it's really, it seems to be coming on this type of work channel that, that folks are moving into potentially lower-waged occupations relative to what you would expect given their college major, you know, it seems to be related to the types of skills or tasks that these jobs require.
0: Okay. So, I mean, I guess to be a little bit normative, that seems better than people leaving the labor force altogether. That's right. And then how do you measure type of work? When you say people are switching the type of work they do, how do we measure that?
1: So there's this really nice database out there that links occupations. You know, they survey workers or they survey employers and say, what kinds of skills or tasks do you do in your job? And so what I do is I link individuals to the types of tasks their occupation require using this ONet database. And so I follow earlier work in the immigration literature by Giovanni Perry and Chad Sparber. They measure the relative importance of different types of tasks, so interactive tasks, quantitative tasks, I also tease out kind of leadership or supervisory tasks for different types of jobs. And so I compare, Mm -hmm. I look at workers who are differently exposed to H-1B immigration entered the labor market when the cap was high versus low. I see evidence that suggests that immigration is causing U.S.-born workers to shift towards occupations that require more interactive or supervisory tasks relative to, say, quantitative tasks. And this is consistent with, you know, this earlier work in the literature that just kind of looked at immigration more broadly. And so the idea here, right, is that like native born workers, because they, you know, this is their, you know, native culture, they have natural language ability from the local language that maybe they have some sort of comparative advantage in communicative right. type tasks. Oh, it makes total sense. That, yeah. And so people are specializing in the types of jobs that, you know, that they have a comparative advantage in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's very intuitive that if they were going to move, that's where they would move to. It also reminds me of Dave Deming's recent work about the value of teamwork and and combining technical skills with social skills as being increasingly important in the modern economy. I think this aligns with that general finding as well. So to recap then, you're exploiting the H-1B visa cap changes that create changes in immigration. We see that immigration depresses natives' relative wages, specifically shrinks the general STEM premium for everybody. And, and one of the main channels for that is, is natives changing job type, but not changing their, their actual labor supply. Is that a fair recap? And then are there any other results that we didn't talk about that you do highlight or that I missed?
1: Yeah, I no, I think that's a very fair recap. I just wanna I think I wanna reiterate this point I was making earlier about all of this being in a relativist sense, right? And so my analysis is gonna implicitly control for how wages or types of jobs of college-educated workers change in the aggregate over time. And so, as I mentioned before, there's some of this pretty good evidence out there that skilled, you know, I find a negative effect but on this relative channel, but there's evidence out there that suggests that skilled immigration in particular can increase the wages of all workers through innovation or technology spillovers. And I'm controlling for that in this study. And so don't speak to that kind of total effect of immigration here. And I think that's an important why this study is complementary.
0: The total immigration might be making the pie bigger, but it's changing how that pie is being sliced. Yeah, that's exactly right. You're holding the size of the pie constant, I guess. Right. right. Yep. So in absolute terms, then it, it could be that that natives are better off or, or no worse off.
1: Yeah. And I think the reason why like, I'm trying to make that point so salient is just given the, the policy context and kind of the immigration space. I think making that point, it's subtle, but I think is really important when thinking about what I find here is a, a part of a larger piece of evidence that we have.
0: Yeah, I totally agree, and I I think that that often, well, a I think that g- often gets missed in in public discourse, but also I think there's there's like a behavioral bias about like reference dependent preferences where some people really care about the relative side of things more than they should, or, mm, or more yeah. than than the their absolute paycheck. So then, what does all this mean in terms of? implications for immigration policy, what options are on the table, even at a higher level, what are the objectives of policymakers in this space moving forward, do you think?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, the key takeaway from this paper is that which type of workers we bring into the U.S. is going to determine the types of workers who stand to benefit or who stand to lose from immigration. So this paper is going to suggest that bringing in a relative abundance of STEM workers means that U.S.-born STEM graduates are going to be more exposed to competition and potentially see their relative wages fall. The story might be different when thinking about other ends of the education distribution or when thinking about other looking across education groups. For example, you know, when when low-educated immigrants arrive in the U.S., the evidence there suggests that maybe they're less likely to compete with other low-educated native-born workers, and they're really competing with lower educated immigrants who had already arrived in the US for example you were talking earlier about how might this differ across contexts that's one difference right is that it could be that immigrants and native born workers are more substitutable in the higher educated space but really it's there it's not you know something about their nativity status that's making them imperfectly substitutable really it's that they study different things in college or something In recent years, you know, in the policy context of this, there's been discussions about maybe instituting a merit or, say, point-based immigration system where potential immigrants are evaluated based off of their language skills, their education, the types of work experience that they bring with them, that sort of thing. And so I would say the findings of this paper can speak to that. By saying that policymakers, when changing the selection mechanisms, by changing which immigrants come into the U.S., this paper is going to say, well, you should make sure you're really careful about how that changes the skill distribution of those immigrants to identify which native-born workers you might want to support in response to those changes.
0: And then I guess related to that, your study did make me wonder about the firm's side of this firms are, are the demand side here. They're the ones who hire the skilled workers. All else equal, they'd like to pay lower wages. Are they actively lobbying for higher H-1B visa caps? Or is it, well, I guess that's one question. And I guess the related part is, is it really, from the firm's point of view, is it about just access to these workers, period? Or is it about access to cheaper, high-skilled workers?
1: I think there's a lot of good questions in there. And I would also maybe add, you know, on top of the employers themselves, there's a number of opponents of the H-1B system that argue the program is allowing these employers to hire workers from abroad and pay them lower wages than you might otherwise think about paying a native-born worker. And so, you know, one potential policy response to that is we already require Employers to say that they're going to pay a prevailing wage for a particular occupation, but are there ways to say increase what that prevailing wage might look like, or the minimum wage that you have to pay an H one B worker? Do you do that at the national level, or do you do that in a local level? Right, like hiring an H one B worker in Seattle or San Francisco might look different than hiring them in South Bend, Indiana, where I'm located, in terms of the cost of living and these sorts of things, and so. You know, I don't know if I have answers to those. The
0: housing market is a whole nother angle to this immigration question.
1: So I don't know if I have answers to those broader questions about like thinking about the employer side of things. But all I would, you know, what I do think my research can speak to is that, again, changing things that change the eligibility requirements or the way in which we use the H-1B visa program to the extent that they're going to change Mm -hmm. the types of workers we bring in. Maybe we increase the prevailing wage or increase the minimum wage of H-1B workers. That could potentially mean we're going to even select more heavily on STEM workers as opposed to non-STEM workers. Changing the skill distribution of who we're bringing in is going to have impacts on the wages in the economy.
0: Yeah. My last question that your paper got me thinking about was, I guess also along those lines about broader impacts, what economists might call general equilibrium effects. And that's just a fancy way of saying nothing happens in a vacuum. There's these changes in immigration that then change the wage structure. They change what current workers are are doing, what types of jobs they're taking, changes what firms are doing, maybe. And all of that could affect future generations, too, about So you're a first-year college student seeing all this. That might change your educational plans. It might change what you want to major in. It might change whether you want to do a graduate degree or not, and so on. Is that something you've thought about much, or can we extrapolate in that direction about what are the broader, more wide-ranging implications of these things? Yeah,
1: so I don't have much in terms of like magnitude. And while my paper doesn't provide like direct evidence on those kind of spillovers into other decisions, I think the results from my paper line up really nicely with some findings in two recent papers that are have come out or are coming out in the Journal of Labor Economics that might provide some guidance here. So there's a paper, uh, a recent paper in Jolie, Journal of Labor Economics by Brian Cadena and his co-authors that show that folks are actually responsive to labor market conditions when choosing their majors. And say, you know, like Mm -hmm. different the job prospects of different majors were affected differently because of the Great Recession and people changed the types of jobs, types of majors they selected based off of how tight or not, you know, loose the labor market conditions were. Because I'm seeing changes in the relative STEM wage premium to the extent that 18, 19 year olds are, are thinking about the relative wages of two different types of jobs and how that might influence their decision. On that margin, maybe folks are slightly less likely to be choosing a STEM major versus a non-STEM major. And then I also think that immigration kind of can directly impact whether somebody chooses uh, STEM as a college major. And so there's a recent paper by Kevin Shee and his co-authors that show that competition in early STEM classes from immigrants, so like you're taking a calculus class and you randomly have more immigrant students in your class than than other sections also might have an impact on whether or not you pursue a STEM major in college. And so that's another potential pathway for kind of these, like you said, general equilibrium effects that are gonna spill over um, how we cultivate the STEM pipeline in this country. And so one concern here about these STEM jobs is that while they're very well paid, if Changes in the wage premium or increased competition in the classroom is leading folks away from picking a STEM major. This might, you know, affect on a larger degree groups of students or groups of workers who are already kind of marginalized or underrepresented in STEM Jobs. I'm thinking in particular of women are, are underrepresented in STEM fields. Workers of color are underrepresented in STEM fields. And so I think this makes policies or programs that aim to provide workers maybe a, a non-traditional pathway into a STEM career all the more important. Programs like Year Up or NPower, for instance, that work with inner city young adults who maybe didn't get a college degree but have an aptitude to, for learning tech jobs or learning these these types of careers, you know, could be really important for bolstering representation of minority groups or women in these fields as a response to maybe increased competition. But maybe maybe that's extrapolating too far from the results of this paper.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's fine. I, I think this is a, a very interesting and important paper that raises all these all these different questions. So we're about out of time. Again, I want to thank you for doing this important work and taking the time to talk to us I'll give you one last chance to summarize any key points you want to make or, or anything we might have missed that our listeners should know about.
1: Yeah. So I think, we, you know, we've covered a lot. Maybe I would just end by saying that if you you take anything away from this paper or this research, it's the idea that who most closely competes with immigrants Uh, are going to be those who, if they experience negative wage effects, are going to be the ones that experience those. And so not all college majors are created this, not all college educated workers are created the same. Computer scientists and historians are participating in different labor markets. And so they're going to be differentially exposed to changes in the number of immigrants in this country.
0: Well said. Well, thanks again. Our guest today has been Dr. Patrick S. Turner assistant research professor in the Department of Economics and the Wilson Sheehan Lab for Economic Opportunities at the University of Notre Dame. Thanks again for joining us. It was a real pleasure to learn about your paper.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: Great. Take care. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management, in conjunction with American University's School of Public Affairs. Please follow us on the APAM website and search for the JPAM podcast.